I love the worship. Welcome to Who Was the Interim Pastor Sunday. Uh, my son is uh, military. He has a military career. He's had uh, two, two terms in Iraq, and he was on, well, he was on loan to NATO for Afghanistan, and so Veterans Day is a big deal in our home. And I, I just want to stop and find out, if you served in the military in any, 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 any part of our military, would you stand? Thank you. That's a big deal. We, uh, we talk about freedom as if it's easy. It's not, and it's expensive, and it's been paid for. I give my wife a gift every, every year. It, it, it's, it's gone on for more than 20 years. I, I get my blood work done every year as a love gift, as a love gift to her. And I, I have to be honest, I'm terrified. It's, it's not the needle, it's not the blood, that doesn't bother me. I am convinced I should be a diabetic. I can't figure out how I'm not a diabetic. Uh, I tell people, you want this body? You got to work on it. <laughs> Ho-hos, Twinkies, candy, pop. It takes discipline to look like this. A breakfast is a cinnamon donut and a Coke. A better breakfast is two cinnamon donuts and a Coke. So I, you think I'm kidding, don't you? I put sugar in my body at levels. And I, I cannot figure out how I'm not a diabetic. And so every year, and, and the, the doctor goes to our church, he's my friend. Every year, he, I, I get my blood work done, and I know that the party's over this year. And, and he always comes back and says, you know, Gene, you're a walking miracle. Your, your sugar's still in a safe level. God's given me this miracle. Now, I, some of you may be diabetic. I know life doesn't end for you. But for me, it would. Uh, and, and you know, the, the, the prescription for the blood work, it, it makes no sense. It's alphabet soup. Check is ABC, check is XYZ. About 10 years ago, he came back and he said, uh, your XYZ, whatever, was high. And, and I said, is it a problem? He said, not really. Your cholesterol is a little, little over the edge. There's a pill you could take. I've already prescribed a year's worth at Walgreens. Uh, take the pill, that should take care of it. So now when I call, I say, okay, you think the blood work? He says, yeah, sugar, okay, have a piece of pie. Uh, and now I'm asking, my cholesterol says the pill's doing exactly what you want. Uh, I, I've already got a year's worth. So now there's two questions, sugar and, and, and cholesterol. Two years ago, he called me and said, I got your blood work. I said, okay. The sugar? He said, you're still in the safe zone. God knows. I don't know why. Uh, cholesterol? Yeah, uh, you're, you're right back where you're supposed to be. Everything, everything looks good. I, I prescribed a pill for another year. So I'm thinking, okay, hang up. I said, okay, thank you, Don. He goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Your PSA came back high. Now, I have no idea. I'm thinking, okay, another pill? I'm getting older, my body's changing. I said, so I, I needed another pill. He said, no, 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 this is different. He says, I, I, I've got an appointment for you for a urologist. A PSA change is an indicant of prostate cancer. When he said the C word, I didn't hear anything else. I, it, it freaked me out. And I, I, I know that Porter's a good hospital, but I canceled, and I, I called Northwestern. I thought, hey, I'm an hour away from Northwestern. I went, I went and, and no knock on Porter, but I, I thought, I'm an hour away from Northwestern. I got in Northwestern, and, and the guy's got all my records because Don forwarded them, and he said, okay, you're, you, you've always been a four, and, and we, don't, we don't care for that, but it's not a big deal. We, we like that, that PSA count to be like a one or a two. 
But the fact that you're four doesn't bother us because you've been four forever. Change is what hurts us. And he said, this blood count this year, you came back at 10. I'm thinking, I'm dead. And he said, so we're, we, we need to verify. And the doctor begins talking to me about, you know, what we do. We, we surgically remove. And he, I, I, I've been thinking, this guy knows I got cancer. And so he, he, he said, we, we, we're going to schedule a biopsy. Okay. But Northwestern's so popular. I mean, urology is on like the 28th floor of this different part of it. At 10 weeks, I had to wait for my biopsy. So for 10 weeks, I was convinced I'm, I got cancer. I, I did the worst thing you could do. I went online. <laughs> Dumb! I went online, and I found out if you have prostate cancer, there are other cancers that are much worse. Only 3% die, but I thought, somebody makes that 3%. There's no symptoms. That tends to go somewhere else, and, 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 that's how, and I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I got cancer all over. I finally got the, uh, I finally got the, the, the biopsy, and I came back clean. Oh, a clapping crowd. <laughs> and I learned something. I did not tell the church. I thought, if I have to have surgery, I'll tell them. But for those 10 weeks, I discovered something. I'm great. Not good. Great. Humble, I know. I am great at hiding my emotions. I put this mask on every Sunday. I loved on my people. I preached to my people. I prayed with my people. I kidded them in the hall. Nobody knew I was dying inside. Nobody knew how hurting I was. I I had this mask that I was able to put on and fake it. And nobody had any idea. I was at this 10 weeks. I woke up thinking about cancer. I went to sleep thinking about cancer. I woke up. it, it, It consumed me. And nobody had a clue and I developed a sermon that I did at, Val- at Valpo Naz called The Mask. Because what I think, not only am I great, I told them I'm suspicious, you're great. And in real life, I'm suspicious, you're great. Not good, great at hiding how much you hurt. You come to real life, you clap, you sing, you enjoy fellowship, you hug each other in the hall, you shake hands, and nobody knows how much you're hurting. Nobody knows down deep inside you're worried about a marriage that ain't working out right. You're worried, you're worried about a finance situation. Maybe you had a doctor's report that didn't come back the way you thought it was going to come back. And we're great at hiding it. But yet we're a community of believers. And maybe the depth of community is equal to the depth of vulnerability. Can I actually take off my mask? I think part of it, we love being the rescuer, not the rescuee. But vulnerability is contagious. Can this actually be a safe place? Because God's design is this to be that one place where you don't have to wear the mask, where you can be vulnerable and honest. For the sake of community, today I'll be vulnerable. Father, we come before you and pray for your unique touch that we look at something very real in our lives today. Amen. Uh, Sherlock Holmes was training Watson. Every time they went to a crime scene, Sherlock Holmes would say to Watson, what do you see? And Watson would say the clues, and Sherlock Holmes would say, okay, Watson, here's what you missed. And over and over and over, always pointing out what he missed, their friendship was getting a little strained. And Sherlock Holmes realizes this, and he says, Watson, I tell you what, let's go away, me and you, man. Let's just renew our, our friendship. Let's go camping. Watson loved it. They, they pitched the tent. They do all the stuff. Three in the morning, darkness of night, Sherlock Holmes shakes Watson and says, look up, tell me what you see. Watson can't believe the guy's giving him an exam. 
I thought we were going we to bond our friendship, not look for clues. But what Sherlock Holmes didn't realize, Watson is an expert in astronomy. So Watson launches. He says, I see a thousand stars, and they're twinkling because they're coming through our hemisphere. And he begins to lay out all the chemicals of our hemisphere that create the twinkle. And behind those stars are, are a million other stars, and, 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 and they look like stars, but they're balls of gas. He lays out all, all the elements, the balls of gas, and we're going around the sun, and he gets into dark matter, and, and he goes into everything. So he realizes, okay, I've left, I've left nothing for Sherlock Holmes. I finally stuck to him. And so he turns kind of arrogantly and says, Mr. Holmes, look up, what do you see? Sherlock Holmes said, Mr. Watson, someone stole our tent. <laughs> we do that, don't we? We talk about all this deep stuff, and there's things right in front of our face. Someone's discouraged and hiding it. And right now, Satan uses that. How can you fulfill God's best if you're defeated? Hiding under the mask. Everything's really fine. I'm okay, you're okay. Let's, let, let's, let, let me bring a verse into play here. Malachi chapter 4, verse 2. But if you honor me, goodness will shine like the sun with healing in his wings. The kicker there is healing in his wings. We don't realize that's slang. Back in, in the time of Christ... Different officers would wear robes. And you knew, if the high priest came to your community, you didn't have to ask, is that the high priest? He'd have the robe of a high priest. You ever noticed everywhere Jesus went, they, they called him teacher? How did they know he's teacher? He's got the robe of a teacher. And the teacher's robe had these long tassels from the sides and the back. And when the wind would blow and they would walk, it would look like wings. And these tassels had the slang of, of the wings of a teacher. So when it says there's healing in his wings, that's, that's, he's basically saying he, he, the Messiah is so overwhelming that even the, the tassels, even there, there is healing. Well, that prophecy was fulfilled exactly. Fast forward to Jesus. He's walking in a crowd. Everybody's jostling him. A woman reaches out and touches the, the tassel, and she's immediately healed. Jesus turns to his disciples and said, somebody touch me. Now, he's being jostled. The disciples said, time out. Everybody's touching you. She comes out of the crowd. She, she specifically fulfills the prophecy of healing in his wings. Let me read it to you. Mark chapter 5, beginning of the 24th verse. A large crowd followed Jesus and pushed very close to him. Among them was a woman who had been bleeding for 20 years. Get that in your head. She suffered for 20 years. She suffered very much of many doctors, spent all the money she had, trying to improve, only getting worse. Should have went to Northwestern. When, when, when I go off notes, just get used to it. When the woman heard about Jesus, she came from the crowd and touched the hem of his garment, the tassel. She thought, if I could just touch that tassel of his clothes, I'll be healed. Instantly, the bleeding was stopped, and she was healed from the disease. At once, Jesus felt power go from him. He turned around the crowd and asked his followers, who touched me? His followers said, look how many people are pushing against you. And you ask, who touched me? But Jesus continued to look around, and the woman kneeled at his feet. She fulfills the prophecy that there's healing in the tassel, healing in his wings. I mean, you ever notice we sing about this? I mean, you ever notice the third verse of Heart the Herald Angels Sing? Hail the heavenly prince of peace. Hail the son of righteousness. Light and life to all he brings, rising with healing in his wings. Okay. No matter how long I'm here, I will never sing again. Thank you, Jesus. 
Some of us just need to reach that tassel. Some of us really need healing. You can't live victoriously if you're defeated. And we get damaged by other people. Someone in your life defined you. Someone declared you failure. Somewhere, someone has hurt you, and you play that back, and Satan uses that. You begin to feel like I'm a child of the king, and Satan can push that button and remind you where you failed. We all failed. Failure is an event, not a person. When we try, we risk failure. If we don't try, we guarantee failure. (laughs) Jesus loves you not based on how you perform. He delights in you. But how can he, when we have this damaged self-image that Satan can always, can, can always pull on? Remember, the Bible calls Satan evil. Never once does it call Satan dumb. So pretty soon we live down to expectations. We believe what we cannot do. We emotionally agree. I, I can't is the cry of the defeated. Proverbs 18, 14. The will to live can go through a sickness, but no one can live with a broken spirit. No one can live with a broken spirit. Satan breaks spirits to where we define what we can't do. I love the conversation, the burning bush. Josh referred to it a little bit this morning. Moses and and God, this conversation. God is telling Moses, you're going to be the guy. And Moses keeps telling him why he can't. My favorite quote in the entire Bible is this conversation. Moses actually says, hear my Lord, send Aaron. Moses is constantly laying out his ability. Frankly, I don't care what his ability is. God said, I'm going to do this, I'm using you. Moses' ability is not the issue. He'll complete what he says he's going to do with you through real life. And it's an epidemic in our churches. We are defeated, wearing the mask as if we're not. And Satan has this evil campaign that's effective. Now, you're going to feel like we're we're veering off. I'm going to pull all this together at the end. I mentioned my son's military. He is now serving as a trainer, an Arctic survival trainer in the the Arctic, and his family lives in Fairbanks. Consequently, Tammy and I, our vacations tend to be Alaska. I mean, our grandkids. And every time I've gone to Alaska all these years, I've learned something else about Alaska. They are different than us. And you say, well, Gene... All of America is different. Do you think people around Harvard are the same as Tupelo, Mississippi? Not better, not worse, but certainly different cultures. I get that. Alaska is a different beast altogether. There are certain things that are Alaskan that are holy to them. And nothing is more sacred to the Alaskan people is the race they call the Iditarod. At the Iditarod in Alaska, life stops. It's called the last great race, and it is. And to, to understand the story, I've got to give you a quick tutorial on, on the Iditarod, because you think, well, I know what it is. It's a bunch of dogs and sled. It goes back honoring a diphtheria outbreak in Nome, and a dog sled, sled team miraculously got the serum to the city. The Iditarod race is 1,161 miles. I, I wanted a reference. 1,161 miles would be from Chicago to Denver. That's 180 miles. So when you get to Denver, you've got 80 more miles to go. It's insane. It starts every March 1st, which is the coldest time of the year, and it's in the Arctic. It requires intelligence. It requires endurance. Only about half the teams finish. Those who finish are champions with one grand champion. Farms are there to breed these dogs. They have a special diet. It's very expensive. It reminds me of horse racing in a lot of ways. In other words, the photo of the horse at, at, at the Kentucky Derby that wins has got a ring of roses around him. 
The dog sled grand champion has a ring of roses around him. And the grand champion is never the human being. The wall of champions in the museum is always the dog. It's like, it's like horse racing. I, I don't know anything about horse racing, but I've heard of Secretariat. If you'd say, but who rode Secretariat if my life depended on it? And, and during the Depression, Seabiscuit was a big deal. Who rode Seabiscuit? I don't know. The champion was the horse. Now, in the Iditarod, the champion is the lead dog, and it takes about 10 or 11 days. They don't do 1,100 miles at once. And they go for about an hour, and there's a stop, checkpoint, where, where veterinarians check the dogs, check, the, check everybody, hour, checkpoint, hour, checkpoint. And it's a race. If you get to the checkpoint two hours before I do, then you leave two hours before I leave. There are 16 team dogs, eight teams, and a lead dog. Now, the Arctic temperature in that time reaches about 50 below zero. But that's not the issue. You ever drive in a car going about 25 miles an hour and put your head out the window? The racers experience about 70 to 80 degrees below zero wind chill. Now, I don't know if you remember, but we had the Arctic blast. I remember January 1st last year going out to get the mail. It, the wind chill was like negative 30. It hurt. I can't imagine negative 70. The riders have a special gear that they wear so that you can't breathe that in. Dogs have booties on their feet. At the checkpoints, the photos are amazing. The dogs have saliva that's frozen, and they have to work that off just to protect them. Every few hours, there's, every hour, there's a vet checking, and the vet can say, this team's done. They can pull dogs. So very few teams can finish with all the dogs. They tend to finish with two-thirds of the dogs. The dogs get pulled, but the lead dog has got to do all 1,161 miles. They are prized. They are valuable. Now, they have these farms. It, it, again, it's like horse racing because if you're in Kentucky, these, these gigantic farms, they have those in Alaska for the dogs. They're huge. They handle the dogs, train the dogs. They want you to come as guests, to, that you handle the dogs because these dogs are going to be handled by veterinarian strangers. They can't be barking at them. They've got to be used to strangers. It's the most demanding race on earth. Tammy and I got to visit a, a ranch in Fairbanks and visit a ranch in Seward. And during the summer, it's really fun. They, they, they put the team together and there's like a sled with wheels, and you can pay extra and get a ride. And so I'm standing in there, and the guy says, you may want to hold on. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, all right. He gave the signal, and I went, <laughs> I mean, these dogs are athletes. They're muscles with eyes. They're athletes. I mean, bang, we were gone. And they averaged about 25 miles an hour. And I mean, they hit that speed immediately. He looked back at me like, told you, dude. I mean, it's amazing to see these animals. They grieve over 2009. Six dogs died on the run, despite the checkpoints. It's the most grueling race on earth. And the betting, hundreds, literally hundreds of millions of dollars change hands in Alaska. They don't bet who wins. They do that. They bet some, there's identifiles that put papers out. This, this is a brand new team, brand new dog. They're just getting used to it. I would project that they're going to get pulled on day three. They bet the day that their dogs are going to get pulled. They would bet they'll get pulled on checkpoint number four, day number four. They bet everything. It's gigantic. Now, with that as a background, in the early 1980s, the breeder, it's a large breed, five puppies. That's a lot for huskies. The fifth is a runt. He's terrible. He's terrible. They begin to train these dogs right away. They show them a treat, and they move maybe 10 yards away, Come get it. 
It's like a football training camp. They're checking who got there first. And they put that treat 20 yards away, then 100 yards away. And they're checking all the time. They got different things the dogs can pull. They want to see who has strengths, who obeys, who's everything. They are checking everything. Pretty quick, they begin to name the dogs. And this fifth dog is a failure. When it comes time to run for the treats, he literally will lay on his back and go, you know, if you just rub my stomach, I believe I'm okay. <laughs> Pulling things, he doesn't move. He is absolutely the worst dog they've ever had. He's a guaranteed failure. They name the dogs after a short time, and they give them doggy names, Fido, whatever. But if a dog is unique, they will positively brand it. The owner comes in and he says, okay, this letter, dog number one. And if, if, if a dog is fast, oh, they know this dog's going to win the race. They might name it Rocket. If a dog loves to pull, they might name him Zeus or something for strength. He says, in this litter, now dog number five. And one of the trainers goes, how about dumb as a bag of rocks? And the owner's pretty unhappy. They don't do that here. He said, what? And other, other, other trainers are going, you don't know. This dog is the worst dog you ever had. He is dumb as a bag of rocks. They said, well, you like one word names? How about cement? He's slow, dumb. He's, he, he's the worst dog you ever had. There's never been a dog here this bad. They have an argument that the owner doesn't like that attitude. It takes a while, but the, the breeders and trainers begin to win the argument. And so they've named them and branded them Granite. Susan Butcher, a young, a young girl who, who's been training the dog, says, I'll work with Granite. Maybe we can get something out of them. Now, just like football, if you, if you can't cut it, you're gone. Now, they don't kill the dogs. They sell them. And there's a long waiting list, and they're very expensive because they're great. They may not be our dinner rod dogs, but they're great dogs. They're used to people and all. So they, they come to time, and, and they make this decision, what do we do with each dog? And as he goes to certain dogs, this dog has excelled in everything we've done. There's a lead dog potential. Okay, up, up his challenges, up his food, everything. This dog, and so the, he gets down to, he said, what about granite? And they're all screaming, sell him! He goes to Susan Butcher. Susan, what do you think? Susan says, I love this dog. Sell him. No, they just can't put, put granite in a box and ship them to Susie in Mississippi. They have to have a vet come in and affirm. The vet comes back with paperwork and no dog. And the vet says, I'm sorry, we're going to put granite to sleep. We're going to kill the dog. And they're, they're unhappy. They, they don't like granite as an Iditarod dog, but they, they love dogs. They said, why? He said, there's a very rare disease that hits huskies. One in a million, but granite's the one. Obviously, his siblings don't have it, but he's got it. And he's going to suffer. Susan Butcher says, does he have a chance of living? And the vet says, small chance. Susan says, I want to give him that chance. And there's a bit of an argument, but Susan wins out. The owner says, Susan, two things. Number one, grant us a pet. Should he live? And the vet's going, should he live? He sold. And number two, we're going to watch carefully. If this dog's suffering with no end, we're stopping it. Susan realizes, I'm not going to get beyond that. And in the book that she wrote, Granite and Me, we're going to skip all the chapters, Granite does survive. And she tells the other, other trainers, you know, we named Granite, Granite as a joke. It's a perfect name. Any dog go through what that dog went through is strong as Granite. 1984, Susan qualifies to run the Iditarod. And the rider gets to name her team. They put a team together. She's a woman, which is very unusual, rare, shocking. And Susan says, I love the team, but I want my lead dog to be Granite. Everybody in the, in, the, in the ranch freaks out. Granite is the worst dog we ever had. I, I know about the disease. He's never been trained. He, he, he can't do this. You, he, and, and the owner says, Susan, I understand your heart. But realize, we get all of our money from sponsors. All of our teams, they expect our teams to finish. Maybe even win once in a while. But Granite is going to get pulled on day one. 
and you're going to have 16 dogs raring to go, and your lead dog fold, you're going to be a punchline, which means we're a punchline. You're pulling us all down with you. Susan is so strong-willed. There he is, granite at the starting gate. You're saying, this is wonderful. Granite won, didn't he? No, he failed. Exactly like they said he would. In fact, there were no bets allowed that he would finish. Most of the bets were that he would, he would get pulled the first day. He got pulled the first day. In fairness, it's dangerous up there. As the evening came, a bull moose attacked the team out of nowhere. Susan called the mayday in. The dogs tried to defend themselves, but they're in harnesses. By the time that they got, got out there in snowmobiles, they can't get the moose off. They have to shoot the moose. Three of the dogs are dead. And not to get gross, but it's a bloody mess. They cart all the dogs back. Susan's in shock because she's been there watching this massacre right in front of her face. They cart the dogs back to checkpoint. Veterinarians are working. Susan is shaking in shock, having some soup. They come to Susan and say, the dogs that died out there, you know about. All the other dogs are going to survive, but they'll never be in the Iditarod again. Now that lead dog, the dog y'all call Granite, we got to put him down. There's just too much damage. Susan goes crazy. No way, no way. He's named Granite because of his strength. And he's shipped to Anchorage. Surgery and Granite survives. She nurses him back to health. And she says, in 1985, I'm going again. And Granite's my lead dog. Now the owners are saying, everything we said was wrong is still wrong. But you realize he's going to freak out up there. Because those glaciers make sounds. He's going to think it's an attack. Now, freaking out means a dog disobeys. If you say go this way and the dog goes that way, we got to get you off because it's dangerous. Night falls, we'll never find you in the Arctic. You, a dog disobeys, they pull him. They said, Granite will freak out. The bets are, again, no chance Granite can finish. And the bets are now he'll freak out. Off they go. Granite freaked out. Supposed to go this way. Susan is pulling up to tell the May Day and she realizes... Crying out loud, they're going to stand in line to tell me I told you so. But it's better than dying. So she's prepared to yell, May Day, and in her book, Granite and Me, Susan said something in her soul said, let trust Granite. She put the radio down and yelled, take us. Now I was thinking, it's negative 70, I'm going in the wrong direction, night's coming, I'm going 25 miles an hour, what would I do? You know I know. May Day! Man, get me out of here, the dog's nuts! That's what you would do. The dog, you're awake now, aren't you? The dog took them in this convoluted way to the, to the checkpoint, and when they got there, they're saying, how'd you get here? Susan said, you can't know. It's, it's been the wildest, wildest ride. And they said, but yeah, but the soft shelf. Now, soft shelf. These glaciers are huge up there, and there's soft snow. Those glaciers shift. Sometimes that snow all slides down, and it might be 100 yards, it might be a mile, but that snow's so fresh and so big, it's like quicksand. A soft shelf happened, and they can't take the snowmobiles on it. They had to pull those dogs through it. Half the teams are done. They're exhausted, and they said to Susan, how did you get through the soft shelf? And Susan said, we, we, didn't, we, didn't have, we had hard ice all the way. They looked at the map, and they realized the point the soft shelf began is where granite veered off and ran them right around the danger. I did a file talk about 1985. They say, how did, how did dog know? How did he know where the food was? The two questions, how did he know where the food was? Identifiles feel like probably his nose, because those noses, they can smell the food. He might attract the food. How did he know there was danger ahead? The identifiles have come up with a fantastic answer. We don't know. <laughs> we don't know. But a dog, they named Granite in 1985. 
crossed the finish. They didn't win, but he crossed the finish line. In 1980, I identify, I was talking about this dog who brought a woman across the finish line. Worst dog we ever had. Never be a lead dog. Shouldn't be a partner dog. Should have been put to death twice. They named him Granite, taking a woman, completed the most grueling race on earth, never lived down to someone's expectations. Nobody can define what you cannot do. No one has the right to discourage you. Satan cannot continue to win at this point at our emotions. His Philippians 4.13, I could do all things through Christ. In 1985, a dog they branded Granite, a guaranteed failure, finished the Iditarod. 1986, Granite won the Iditarod. 1987, Granite won the Iditarod. 1988, Granite won the Iditarod. First three-time grand champion in the history of the world's most grueling race. Satan can't use anyone to defeat me. In fact, Granite is the greatest dog in the history of the Iditarod. Oh, there you go. There, 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 there goes the clergy fib. Make a story a little better. You guys love to do that, don't you? You couldn't let it be. Now he's the greatest dog ever. I'm with you. Except the Iditarod Museum is in Wasilla, Alaska. And it's what you'd expect. It's not, this, it's not this granite edifice. It's a huge log cabin, a series of cabins. and It's incredible. But as you walk in, there's a statue in the front. And the statue is a dog. And it says, to all the great dogs of the Iditarod, and underneath it says, modeled after the greatest dog of them all, a dog named Granite. I thought you'd want to see it. No one has the right to define you. Let's move up. All throughout Alaska, there are statues of this dog. My favorite's China, Alaska. It's a post office. At one side, there's a cardboard cutout of, of Susan Butchery. Take a picture of Susan. Another side, there's a little statue. It says, Granite, greatest dog in history at Iditarod. Take a look at China, the greatest dog in Iditarod history. Fast forward, 2004. Granite's long, long died. Susan's married, two small children. And Susan's energy, I mean, she's all energy. She's type A. She's, she's fought for this dog. Her husband's saying, you know, you don't have that... You don't have that drive. Something ain't there. And so he said, well, maybe it's iron. Have a, full, have a full physical and find out why. She did. It's leukemia. And it's terminal. Susan fought the disease but died August 5th, 2006. The funeral in Fairbanks. Everybody's there. Politicians, breeders, trainers, owners, racers, identifiles, fans. They crowd into Fairbanks, she's their hero. This is their race. They've come to pay their respects. And they say that once people came, finally got into the room, because the line was down the block, once they finally got in the room, they began to cry. Now, part of it was probably they could see Susan in the casket. They could see her husband and two small children. But there was a gigantic banner that greeted them. And the banner is a photo of Susan, the championship win. And usually these, these, these banners... They have the dogs in the front, and, and the winner is, 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 is uh, like this. Not this photo. Susan's holding a dog to her chest, and the dog has roses around his neck, and they see the two together, Susan Butcher and Granite, the greatest team of all time, and they began to cry. March 1, 2008, Susan Butcher is honored by the state of Alaska. The governor at that time, Sarah Palin, declares the first Saturday of every, mar of every March 
beginning of Iditarod, as Susan Butcher Day. The bill states, to remember the life of Susan Butcher, as inspiration to Alaskans and Maine's around the world. But at the time of her death, there was an ed- editorial that I found powerful. I actually copied it. From, it's a newspaper from, from the museum. Let me read the first paragraph. Without Susan Butcher, there would have never been a granite. Now, up there, they knew of the story. Granite should have been put to sleep as a puppy, should have been put to sleep as, uh, with the moose attack. Without Susan Butcher, there would have never been a granite. But also without granite, would there have been Susan Butcher? Without granite, would she have just been another racer? But together, they were the perfect team. Incredible. They found the line marked impossible and crashed through it. They found the line marked impossible and crashed through it. What's impossible for you? That you need a partner with Christ. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things. Partner with Christ. Break through that impossible wound. Maybe you've had that wound for 20 years. Maybe you've had a mask on for 20 years. There's healing in his wings despite the hurt, despite who's branded you, who's defined what you can't do. And Satan has used so effectively, there's healing in his wings. You're defeated, there's healing in his wings. You're discouraged, there's healing in his wings. You've been ambushed. There's healing in his wings. You failed. There's healing in his wings. You've been embarrassed. There's healing in his wings. You've been beaten down. There's healing in his wings. You've sinned. There's healing in his wings. Mark chapter 5 talks about a woman who discovered healing. There's healing in his wings for you. I can do all things through Christ because we're the church. We're the church. And the gates of hell cannot prevail when we're the church. We're the church. If this is a battle, I'm not going to die by getting shot in the back. We're going forward because we're the church. And nobody has the right to define you or real life in any negative way because we're the church. Let's stand together this morning. Father, I'm not sure we need a pep rally. But we ought to be encouraged. We're going to go through an interim together. Doesn't change the fact that we're the church. And my heart bleeds for those who Satan have been pathetically effective at making them feel less than they are. We're a child of the king. Satan has this evil ability to attack our self-image and pretty soon we're afraid pretty soon we live in the world of i can't pretty soon we live in the entire world of regret that's not what you called us to be we're the church the gates of hell are afraid of us we're not afraid of them we're going forward and nobody can define us in the negative because we're the church and father we pray your power and blessing and anointing. May the mask come down where we've hid how we're hurt and let someone else partner in loving us. On the screen, we're going to put Philippians 4.13. Go ahead and put it up. Philippians 4, yeah. I want us to end every, every Sunday in the Word. But I want to say the word together. So say it with me. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Okay, now you're kind of there. Now, let's, not, let's actually say it. 
I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. We ain't kidding. God bless you. Thank you for worshiping with us this morning.